You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Dean Baker. Dr. Baker is an associate professor and co-convener of the Future Operations Research Group in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences in the University of New South Wales, Canberra at the Australian Defense Force Academy. He specializes in ethics of armed conflict. Dr. Baker, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, if you don't mind, Dr. Baker, I think I'd start off with a big softball. And what is military ethics? Oh, <laughs> that's not a softball. Well, the first thing to say is it's not an oxymoron. I get that sometimes. It isn't military ethics an oxymoron? No, it certainly is not. In fact, in some respects, I think that ethics are, in an important way, the core of the military profession. So I like to think of the analogy of medicine, for example, and, and other professions. In medicine, you've got the something like the Hippocratic Oath, which is, in some sense, the core of the profession. So it's not just the skills that define people as medical professionals, but it's the core norms that they are committed to. And the same is true of the military. If you don't have those core fundamental normative ideas, those core constraints, those core ethics, then you're really not a military professional. And so the way I see it, military ethics is about what the profession is about, which is, of course, the use of force. Obviously, the military does lots of other things, but the core role of the military is to use the old saying, to break things and kill people, but that needs to be done in the right kind of way. And so military ethics at its core is those sets of constraints, those sets of permissions that define what is the appropriate use of force in war and armed conflict. And so we draw very heavily on the just war tradition, particularly the Jus Imbelo part of the just war tradition, but there are other aspects to military ethics as well. So obviously key to the profession is the position it holds within the context of the state and this idea of submission to the elected principles, the elected civilians who rule a state, that's part of the defining feature of the profession. And so that idea of obedience to elected civilians is also part of military ethics. So there are other aspects, but really the core, I think, is around the ethics of war fighting. And what is the uh, just war theory you mentioned? So just war theory is, I try to not use the word theory, although that's certainly quite commonly used, but I try to talk of the just war tradition because it's not really a theory in the way that, say, the theory of relativity is a theory, which is all kind of neat and wrapped up and very tight fitting. Rather, it's a tradition of thought and it goes back a, a very, very long way. We go back to um, Augustine and Aquinas as early figures in the Western tradition. You've got more contemporary scholars who have, I say more contemporary, still a good way back, who start to secularize it. So obviously it starts out in a Christian worldview, but it becomes secularized over time by, by people like Grotius and brought through to the contemporary era by people like Michael Walzer. And it's a deep and rich tradition of thought that's still got areas of debate and engagement and discussion going on, but there are some core principles that, that define it. And there are really two main parts to the just war tradition. There's the jus ad bellum, which is those set of questions that states are supposed to ask themselves when they are, are thinking about whether to reach for war as a, as a tool to achieve policy ends. And so those are the constraints that define what a just war looks like when the decision is being made to go to war. 
But then obviously there's the important question of how force is used once that decision is made. And those are the key principles that define the use in Bellow. And really those are the heart of the military profession. There is more to the tradition than that. There are some recent additional avenues that the, the tradition has expanded into. There's a, a growing discussion, for example, of what's called just post bellum. What are the conditions that apply in the aftermath of a war, at the end of the war, does that affect how, for example, how we fight a war now, if we're thinking about how things should be left and so on? So there are other parts to it, but really there are those traditional two core bits, which is the jus ad bellum, the decision to go to war, and the jus in bellum, which is the constraints and permissions that define appropriate use of force within the context of a war. That makes a lot of sense. So I, I usually see in... If I'm reading something about this or reading something about ethics, people will commonly hyphenate moral ethical traits in soldiers. How are ethics different than morals? Well, wow, that's a great question. And you'll probably get a different answer to that question depending on which ethicist or philosopher you ask. So I'll give you my answer, but not uh, in any way suggesting this is the unchallenged answer to the question. The way I tend to see it, I follow a Canadian philosopher in this, uh, Charles Taylor, who, uh, not to be mistaken for the, <laughs> the war criminal, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who talks about it this way. He says that morality is about what it's good to be, whereas ethics is about what it's good to do. And I think if we start to pull those two things apart, we we can see why they're not exactly the same thing, but why they are importantly interconnected. So as a soldier, what it's good to do is defined very importantly by your role as a soldier. So it's not so much your character, but obviously your character is very important in driving you to do the things that are appropriate as a military professional. So there's that core connection. You can't disconnect the two things, but we do sometimes talk about them separately. So if the ethics are kind of the, the shared professional guidelines, how do a military's ethics then interact with things such as the law of war, the LOAC, or the law of armed conflict and international humanitarian law? I have a lot of those conversations, especially relating to urban warfare. How do they interact with ethics? Yeah. So broadly speaking, if you think of law and ethics in the general sense, there's a pretty strong relationship on the whole. Because one way of thinking about what law does is it tries to entrench and enforce behavior that is usually in line with our ethical expectations, right? expectations about what the ethical thing to do is. But of course, law and ethics don't always correspond. So I did a good deal of my growing up in South Africa. And back then it was during the apartheid regime. So the apartheid regime was very clearly a legal regime, right? It was uh, a structure of discrimination that was legally embedded into the system of the states. Courts enforced these laws, the police enforced them, but they were clearly unethical laws. And so law and ethics don't always correspond, but very often what's going on is that the law is the encapsulation of an underlying ethical principle. So when we come to talk about LOAC or IHL, there is quite a close correspondence between that and the just war tradition. Many of the principles that we find or many of the, the constraints we find in IHL are very much built on principles that come out of the just war tradition. So there's a close alignment. I suppose the main difference is that the emphasis in IHL is very strongly on the questions of the inbello, of the use of force within a, a war, which is only part of the just war tradition. So there are some bits of, of IHL that address that question of when it's appropriate appropriate for a state to go to war, but it's much more expansive in the ethics side of that. 
So I suppose one way to think of this is that law is always going to be narrower than ethics. Law defines the space within which you can act, but it doesn't always tell you what you should do. So for example, let's say you're on the battlefield and you encounter a child soldier. Well, a child soldier is a soldier because they are, depending on the environment, obviously, but let's assume it's a clear case of direct participation in hostilities. So legally, you're imperfectly entitled to engage that child soldier. But there's still an ethical question should I? Is there something else I can do in this situation? So law doesn't exhaust the situation in that case. You need to ask an an additional set of ethical questions to work out what the right thing to do is. Yeah. So again, I think that the law provides a kind of fundamental framework. Ethics gives you a guide to action within that framework, which is partially why military lawyers often get frustrated. They get asked what the right thing to do is, and they only feel qualified often to say what the legal thing to do is, which is not always answering that question. Yeah, I actually have a lot of lawyer friends, and th- there is just some type of tension there when they ask me about you know the international humanitarian law and law of proportionality and all these sets of rules that I now know. But I can't say I was growing up as a soldier for 20 years that I could quote to you the law of war or the law of armed conflict, but I could tell you in battlefield decisions that w- what I felt was ethically, as in like an army, like we don't do, we don't kill civilians, we don't kill unarmed personnel, or I wouldn't. It seems like I somehow was institutionalized with a set of morals and ethical principles that then prepared me for the battlefield rather than saying that, yes, I was trained in the law. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think that's a common experience, that sense of we know what the right thing to do is. We may not know the specific legal constraints, but they really do correspond very often with that internalized sense that you'd kind of absorb through your military career, through those normal everyday interactions and experience within your military career. So I actually have two in relation to that. And how do you how do you get militaries to understand all of this and then test it on the complexity of the stress of combat? So one part on the ethics is, well, how does a military develop and institutionalize its ethical framework on soldiers? The answer is it really does differ quite a lot by mili- from military to military. So, for example, for a very long time in the British Army, it was the regimental system that was the, the focus for all values and norms. It was really at the regimental level that ethics was developed and inculcated, and largely in a, in a very informal kind of way, not with explicit instruction, but with that sense of this is who we are, this is our identity. And I think it usually does tie to identity, but we're increasingly seeing a lot of militaries are becoming a lot more deliberate about the way they try to institutionalize ethics. Uh, so we're seeing a lot more explicit ethics training. There are even some attempts to develop ethics doctrine. I know we have a process, at least in discussion at the moment here in Australia, about around the idea of ethics doctrine. So it's, it's increasingly becoming formalized. And I think perhaps that's necessary, but still, broadly speaking, it is a little bit ad hoc. It does depend a lot on who you happen to encounter along the way in your career what your various commanders feel about this and, and how much emphasis they put on it. So we're, we're slowly starting to get a little bit more systematic about things. Yeah, it has to be tough. I, again, in self-reflection in my own career, it almost feels like it started on day one just with repetition and reinforcement during training. And you know, this is what we do. This is what we don't do. And I know that you know, now we're starting the complexity of group norms and you know, what's written versus what's kind of cultural, it gets real complex. And my other question though, in, in relation to this is, so if there's a formalized way for different militaries to teach ethics, then 
there must be, of course, there's formalized ways to teach them the law of armed conflict. And the only reason I asked the question is because you and I have discussed situations where soldiers are clearly stretching the laws of armed conflict, but where the absence of knowledge of the law isn't an excuse for adherence to the law. And I know this is where it gets really tough when you, you told me, you know, there's a close relationship between the laws trying to enforce kind of the conduct of armed conflict versus ethics. It's baking it in. How do you formalize that separation of ethical formal training and law formal training? So I think I'm saying, suggesting that we are increasingly doing formal training of law and ethics. And I think that's necessary, but I don't think that's enough. And I think the more traditional way where soldiers absorb these principles and ideas is through, as you said, that experience of you start on day one, you get taken to the range and you get shown how to do things. And built into that how to do things are some often unexpressed, but some key normative constraints. So pop-up targets start happening and, and you learn, okay, I don't shoot the, the non-combatant, maybe not without with any discussion about the principle of discrimination, but you're learning this. And I think that that's probably in one way, the more powerful way of learning, that experiential way. I think we need both. I think we need that experiential learning, but we also need to be able to kind of put the labels on them to be able to go, okay, yeah, that's why I'm doing that. I remember that discussion or that briefing. So it's really about making those things work together. The danger is the ethics brief comes around or the, the law brief comes around and everyone goes, okay, it's a mandatory brief. Yeah, we sit through it and maybe we listen to a bit of it and we take a few notes and tomorrow that's all gone out of my head because I'm back to what feels like my real job, which is practicing the art of, of soldiering. So we've really got to work on how we merge those two things together. And I think that's a challenge, but I think it's it's definitely doable. Yeah, for sure. I'm an, I'm definitely a fan and can remember the experiential learning much more than I can ever remember any mandatory class I had to sit in. So now the question is, where do you see military ethics being tested? I assume under the stress of combat, but you as an ethicist, where do you see it being tested in somewhere you could point to, not to make a right or wrong judgment, but saying, this is why we do ethics training. This is why we have an ethical framework is tested in this moment. Well, definitely combat is where in many cases the rubber hits the road. That's it's the pointy end of it all. That's where we're making those key distinctions between combatants and non-combatants. That's where we're making that decision that this is a proportional use of force. This is a necessary use of force, which are ideas that are there in both the law and the ethics. So definitely combat is one of the biggest areas where it's challenged. And combat is an incredibly stressful environment. So there are all sorts of factors that contribute to combat being a very, very difficult environment to make good decisions. And we know this in general, that decision-making under combat is hard, but ethical decision-making is a subset of those decisions. And that is very, very difficult in a combat environment. So there have been some empirical studies that really show a clear correlation between combat exposure and risk of unethical behaviors. And that kind of makes sense. We're putting people into very, very challenging situations. So combat is definitely a, a key focus, but it's not only that. So I, I think I mentioned, you know, one of the key ideas that is core to the military profession is this idea of military obedience to the elected government of the day. And that's, I think, part of military ethics, at least arguably speaking. And that can be very tested and testing in times of great political division, for example, in a state. So it's not only during the combat 
times. And as I go around, I deliver ethics training here and there. It's always fascinating for me to hear the stories that people tell me about where their ethics were challenged, because it's not always around a combat situation. It may be pre-combat, or it may be a workshop environment, which is not specifically military ethics, but it's ethics within the military, I suppose. So yeah, combat is definitely the biggest challenge, but there are lots and lots of other areas where we face pressure and where there's the risk of, I suppose, ethical slippage. This is the fascinating part of this topic for me. It's this you're a leader in the army or in the military, and you can foresee situations that may lead to a higher risk of an ethical decision being made. I mean, I personally was what I think ethically tested once in Iraq at a traffic control point when a person offered me $10,000 to be able to go through my checkpoint unsearched. In that moment, I view that, hey, this is not something that we do, not something that I would do. So I call it ethical dilemma. That's a term I hear a lot. How do you define an ethical dilemma? So there are essentially two ways our ethics can be tested. And my colleague, Dr. Stephen Coleman, has coined terminology here. He talks about ethical dilemmas on the one hand versus tests of integrity on the other. And actually, far more of our challenges are, by this definition, what he would call a test of integrity. And a test of integrity is where we know what the right thing to do is, or we would, if we were able to step back from the situation, it would be pretty clear what the right thing to do is. But it's hard to do the right thing, right? For whatever reason that is. It may be that it's just because of temptation in that example you gave. So it might be difficult to turn down $10,000. I know I'd find that a challenge, but I know that that's the right thing to do. That's what I should do. So that's what Steve Coleman calls tests of integrity. The other category is what we would call ethical dilemmas. And really an ethical dilemma, properly speaking, is where it's hard to know what the right thing to do is. So you're facing two or more courses of action, and it's just really difficult to work out what is the right answer to this? What course of action is the appropriate course of action? That's usually because you've got a tension between important things going on. And yeah, those can be very challenging. But actually, far more often we're faced, as I was saying, with these tests of integrity. And while that's the terminology that's kind of stuck, I don't love the idea of putting it under all under integrity, because I think what we've since come to start to recognize is that, you know, when you talk about integrity, you're really generally talking about that person's character. But we're starting to learn, particularly from our colleagues in the psychology world, how influential environmental factors are on our decision making. That even people of good character can make bad decisions if the environment conspires against us enough. So for example, if we're fatigued, we might be a good person, but if you're fatigued enough, you're at significantly more risk of making a poor ethical decision. There's all sorts of similar factors like that that tie to the way our brains actually function. So I used it a lot myself, and but I've come to be a little bit more uncomfortable with the idea of it being a test of integrity, but we don't yet have a better label to put on that. But it's that idea of where the right answer is clear enough, it's the challenge of doing the right thing. That makes sense. Is there a quintessential ethical dilemma scenario that you may say is, here's a great example of an ethical dilemma in a military context? Well, in a not so much in a military context, but in a sort of general context, the most well-known ethical dilemma is what's known as a trolley problem. I'm sure that's familiar. It's an imaginary scenario. There's a train coming down the tracks, 
and there are some workers on the train tracks who don't realize the train is coming, train or trolley, whichever you want to use. If you do nothing, they'll get hit by the train. What you can do, though, you can pull a lever and it'll make the train go onto another set of tracks, but then there's one person on those tracks. And so the question is, do you pull the lever and save five, but cause the death of one? And that's a a kind of classic example of a, a fictional dilemma, and it's used as a thought experiment to draw out people's intuitions. But there are many real world situations that military people face that in many ways mimic that kind of problem. So imagine, for example, you're a a sniper on the battlefield, your unit is taking increasingly accurate mortar fire, you identify who the the spotter is for the enemy mortar fire, and in this case, it's an eight-year-old girl with a cell phone. And you're in the position of making the decision, do you shoot the sniper or do you hold back and accept the incoming fire? In, In many ways, that is a structurally similar situation to the trolley problem. You're choosing whether to kill one to say five, that particular situation, we've chosen the spotter to be a child so that there's a sense of at least some kind of innocence. Although they're a soldier, you can kill them. They're engaged in the business of war, as Walter would say. You can kill them, but there's a sense you don't want to. And so you're weighing up the lives of some versus the life of one. And in some ways, a very structurally similar situation to the trolley problems. Well, so I know from our past talks, and you know, this is the Urban Warfare Project podcast, and I know from our past talks, you're interested about the ethics and the lens of urban warfare. Can you talk basically what your interest is and how you got into that interest and what are the concerns you see in urban warfare today? Yeah, I'm always interested in areas of military ethics where there are gaps, uh, where we haven't done enough work yet. And I think that this is one of them. The other that I'm interested in is uh, ethics around special operations, which I'm doing some work on at the moment. But urban warfare is incredibly challenging and it does throw up particularly difficult ethical challenges, but there hasn't been a great deal of work done on that yet. The good news is that the European chapter of the International Society for Military Ethics, their annual conference, which was supposed to run this year, has been postponed, but that is on the theme of ethics in urban operations. That's great to see the academic community starting to engage with this in a serious way. But some years ago, I read the only other really major piece written on this, which is a book by Alice Hills. I think it's uh, 2014 or 2015. It's called Future War in Cities, Rethinking a Liberal Dilemma. And it really sparked my interest because she makes a very strong case that drawing on, on historical examples, that what happens with urban warfare is that liberal states, so liberal democracies like the ones you and I live in, start off when they enter these fights with these strong ethical ideals. But the deeper they get bogged into urban fights, the greater the likelihood that they start to let go of those ideals and start to use force in a much more expansive way. Because urban war is just very, very hard. And so it starts to present you with ethical challenges, and it becomes difficult to fight while still sticking within those ethical constraints that are the appropriate constraints. And there's this tension, do we keep going when it's hard to do so ethically? And and so this is, in a way, a kind of dilemma that we need to resolve. We need to have a a set of ethics based on existing ethics, not something new, but we need to have a, a way of understanding the application of traditional military ethics such that it applies in the urban environment and allows us still to fight. And I think that's a fundamental thing that is really key for military ethics. 
and it's easy for academics, and there certainly are lots who do this, to go, well, these are the principles, and if it means you can't fight there, you can't fight there. But in the real world, military ethics is a compromise. It's a compromise between two key ideas. One is that wars will happen, and sometimes wars need to be fought. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. We have to accept that. And on the other hand, that ethics is important, constraining force is important. And so we need to keep those two things alive. If you go too far and say the constraints mean we can't fight, then we've actually undermined the very uh, idea of, of military ethics. So urban warfare is very hard. Obviously, it's got multiple dimensions. It's complex warfare. And so think of examples like how the way urban warfare tends to splinter units into small units, fighting in very localized areas and with really challenging logistics where it's hard to have that reach back to other supporting units. So if you're in a small unit and you take some prisoners, well, now your combat power is significantly reduced. You now have to take care of these prisoners. You've got to respond to them. And if there aren't very many of you, you've become bogged down. And so what's happened traditionally is that there's an increasing temptation for the units on the ground not to take prisoners, right? Even though there are people who are perhaps wounded or who have surrendered, we just don't take the prisoners because it's too hard. And so that's the kind of challenge that we start to face when we get into these very difficult urban environments. Yeah, I know Alice Hill's books. It's, it's really good. And for me, of course, I, I'm a big advocate that urban environments are the hardest place to ask soldiers to engage in armed conflict for many reasons, not just the complexity of the terrain, but the presence of civilians, the presence of protected populations and places. And all that layered on, it go back to, I think, what we were talking about earlier about leaders predicting situations where there will be ethical dilemmas or ethical decision-making. And in the urban environment, I believe, and, and why I think you and I have talked so much, is that the urban environment, under the capabilities we have today, especially if you're talking about high-intensity combat in dense urban terrain amongst populations that are still present, the chance of you asking lower and lower levels of soldiers to make ethically questionable decisions, very lawful. But then it's it's an ethical question. Well, I can, but should I? Absolutely right. So the density of population makes it much, much harder, unlike really any other kind of environment. It's just the challenge of knowing what's going on. It makes things much more difficult. So ethics is much harder under uncertainty. And urban environments levels of uncertainty that I think we just don't see in other kinds of, of contexts. So the way we fight has to be constrained and that just makes it a lot harder and definitely does push everything down to a much lower level. It's not a an accident that General Krulak's idea of the strategic corporal was in an urban environment. As he sketches out that scenario all that time ago, he wasn't really thinking about urban warfare per se, but it was a three-block war, right? It's a blocks of an urban environment and that's the level of complexity. And so we are challenged all the way down. And understandably, this is one of the reasons that states try to look the other way when they think about urban warfare and think, well, let's just not do it. But that's not always going to be an option for us. No. And I think the more you go down that lane, the more urban combat you'll see because the avoid and bypass thought or the, the desire not to do it will drive your enemies to pull you into it because for the liberal dilemma, you don't want to do it and you constrain yourself I and mean, it causes situations that you don't want to be in, which is exactly what your enemy would want you to be in. So would you say in urban combat or in combat in general, we talk about these risk indicators or these indicators of, hey, you should anticipate that you're going to be facing ethical decisions. Sometimes it comes back to me, if I think about some historical cases, recent incidents 
where everybody views what that person did or what that unit did was wrong. But under the context of, like you said, environmental factors, they just had this number of their fellow soldiers killed. Does that casualty taking increase the complexity of the ethical decision-making? Oh, absolutely. And we have to be always be very careful with hindsight bias. It's very easy to sit on a, a comfortable chair and, and watch a, a documentary or read something about the way people behaved and go, well, that was wrong. And that may be objectively true. It might have been the wrong thing to do objectively. But we really have to be very careful not to underestimate just how hard those issues can be. And that's where the emphasis for commanders is on trying to foresee the kinds of ethical challenges and environmental circumstances that increase, if you like, the volume of those challenges, what that's going to look like and try to mitigate those in advance. But that's not always possible. I mean, we do that through training again and again, you know, training people to uh, select their targets the right way under pressure and so on. That's a big part of it. But the commander has a very big responsibility to try to foresee, well, if we leave that unit out there for that length of time and they're not getting any kind of outside inputs, is there a risk of ethical drift? Well, yes, there is. So I need to try to mitigate that in various ways. And we're really only starting to understand what those factors are and how they work. There's a lot of neuroscience involved in this that we still need to kind of work out. But the more we can understand those factors and how they influence us, the more we are able to actually put in place mechanisms to try to protect ourselves from going down that ethical slippery slope. I remember some of this training coming up as an officer, but I can't from my own experiences, really point to that leader responsibility to anticipate ethical, what you just said, I like that ethical drift, but also be able to measure and constantly assess the situation and know whether your formation or individual is heading down the wrong road and needs a course correction. I think that's one of the, for me, my past experiences of this is not only leader responsibility to be aware of it, but have the ability to do a course correction of the way that things are going. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing we can do is start to try to be explicit about asking what those risks are in the planning process. So in the in the Australian context, you know, when you're doing military planning, one of the things that you ask is about risk. And one of the risks that's considered is risk to reputation, which is important, obviously. But I think there's a parallel thing that we don't actually deliberately ask, what are the ethical risks here? And so that's where there needs to be a lot of work. And that's understandable because we don't really understand the ethical risks as well as we should yet. And that's where there needs to be work from the academic world, from the scholarly world, to be able to enable the planner, the, uh, the officer, the leader to anticipate and therefore compensate. It's a tough topic. It really is. So it's really hard to, to be able to storytell and to make it real for the individual who's not in that gray area or not in that under that stress of the decision. It's really hard, I think, to teach this or to instill this, you know, and have that emotional impact that somebody will get it. So something that's related to urban warfare, although you know that's my that's my heart is on urban warfare, but I think something that is closely related, and I also know that you do a lot of work with is urban warfare, hardest environment. We're trying to develop and we believe that there's certain technologies will improve the capabilities in urban warfare and reduce some of the complexity, such as the use of robotics, 
the use of drones and semi-autonomous weapons. And then people take that even further to artificial intelligence, sensor to shooter kind of stuff. But I know you do a lot of work and there are some ethical concerns, not saying, you know, just putting killer robots on the battlefield that have no human in, in the loop. But what are the, some of the major ethical concerns about the use of things such as robotics and artificial intelligence, especially in, for me in the urban warfare context? So, yeah, well, I think broadly speaking, any time we come up with some new kind of capability, whether it's technological or otherwise, or some new technique, there is a general responsibility to ensure that it is also ethical. It may, you know, obviously the natural thing is to go, well, is it going to be operationally useful? Is it going to help me achieve my operational ends? But we also have to ask that additional question, does it do so in an ethically appropriate way? So because we can doesn't always mean that we should. And as you say, there's there are lots of debates, and rightly so. It's right that there's debate over these new kinds of systems that are starting to emerge, robotics, autonomous weapons, and so on. And I think there's a rigorous debate on those. I mean, I, I don't know how far you want me to go in, into that particular discussion. But what I think is, is important to see in those discussions is the, the danger is to go, oh, this is a new system or a new approach or something new. And so we need to kind of start from scratch in thinking about what the ethics are or whatever. But actually, the good news is that the ethical frameworks that we already have that stretch back thousands of years, at least a thousand plus years, is an incredibly robust framework. It gives us the right questions. We just have to figure out what the answers look like with these particular kinds of systems. So can we use autonomous weapons in a way that satisfies the requirement of discrimination or distinction? Can we use them in a way that ensures that the force is used only when necessary? Can we do it in a way that the force is proportional? Those are the right questions. And so we've got a fantastic framework. I think in, in many ways, it's far more robust and well-developed ethical framework than any of the other professions. It's really just about putting them through that lens. And I think part of the problem we find with these discussions is that there's a disconnect often between the people who are talking about the ethical questions and the military people who are thinking about how to use them. Often the people talking ethics don't really understand how the military thinks, how the military uses capabilities, what ways they would be likely to use these particular things. And the military is focusing more on the, uh, the operational use and not really engaging with those ethical questions. So what's really important is for a, a respectful conversation between those two, which isn't always the case, unfortunately. So I loved your video on YouTube, breaking down the different parts to the video that came out a couple of years ago called The Slaughterbots, which in full visibility. When I first watched the video, I thought it was real and like, oh man, this is going to be awesome until it got to kind of some of the questionable parts. But your video lecture where you break down every component of the Slaughterbot video and say, here are the ethical questions these raise. And the point that the video is created was to raise some of those questions. But I think your lecture on that was amazing and I really enjoyed it. So this really leads to my last question, what you were talking about with you know different communities coming together is how do ethicists shape military contact or shape public expectations of military conduct, really, how do you influence for the, the way ahead on this topic? Well, I think the first answer is that we're probably not as influential as we might hope. So there are very few, relatively few military ethicists out there. There is a growing community and a growing scholarship. We've come a long way in the last couple of decades, which is great. And so, so I think it's important that there be 
clear and strong ethical voices around these issues. I do think we have a kind of a problem within the academic world where essentially you've got two kinds of scholars who are doing what we might broadly think of as military ethics. And just roughly, you might call some of them philosophical ethicists and others applied ethicists. And I think we run into problems because of this divide. And as a philosopher myself, I I take some of the blame here. But the challenge is for a philosopher, what we're interested in are kind of nutty problems and interesting arguments. That's really what drives a philosopher. Oh, that's a really interesting argument. So you get a, a lot of scholarship around military ethical questions that is really driven by the argument and driven to sometimes quite if I dare say, absurd conclusions, but where the argument is very strong. It's very well put together, very rigorous, and academically very interesting. The danger is that when you reach those conclusions and people on the outside are not necessarily au fait that there are two kinds of ethicists that do this kind of thing, and and you get the scholar who's from Oxford or Cambridge or wherever who says X, where X is completely against any kind of actual military practice, you've got kind of a problem. And I think there's a responsibility on us. I would try to be in that category, the second category of what I would call applied ethicists, where we are scholars who work closely with the military, who take seriously the rigorous scholarship, who take seriously the ethical arguments, but also do so in a way that tries to be practically valuable. It tries to live within the broad constraints that the public accept for the use of, of military force and so on. So I think there is value. I'm, not, I'm certainly not belittling philosophical ethics. There's value in pushing those boundaries and seeing where they go because they raise questions for us to discuss. But I think we have to be a lot clearer in our public engagement. That's what we're doing in those kinds of cases versus, well, no, this is the applied ethics. This is what we actually are expecting militaries to abide by. It makes sense to me. And it's actually fascinating, tough conversations. What the U.S. Army really wants to have is force these tough conversations and these tough scenarios that we can institutionalize the right conduct. So Dr. Baker, I think we'll leave it there. And I really appreciate your time. And I think this is an important topic. I think a lot of people will be really interested. I I actually learned a lot. Oh, well, I always love talking about it. And I really appreciate you inviting me, John. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out MDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.